You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. So we're looking at Ephesians 4, and I'm reading verses 1 through to 6. As, an, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Uh, thanks, Alex. For, please uh, keep your Bibles open or open it up to Ephesians chapter 4 if you don't already have it open. Uh, if you don't know me, uh, my name's Aaron. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at DPC. Oh, I can't, I, I've got a vision impairment, so it's possible that there are some visitors here on a long weekend. Uh, welcome to you. Uh, please come and say hi uh, at the end of the service. I probably won't be able to spot you across the, uh, across the church, so come and say hi. It'd be great to meet you. Uh, please have the Bibles open. Uh, there's an outline of, is there an outline of my sermon? There's an outline of my sermon on the welcome card, I think. Yes, great. We're in the process of perhaps transitioning where we put our sermon outlines. So uh, there's an outline of my sermon on the welcome card, if that's useful for you to follow along. Uh, let's pray together. Uh, gracious Father, uh, please sustain me this afternoon. Uh, give me uh, energy and clarity uh, to speak your word faithfully and carefully. Uh, and we pray, Father, that you would uh, take up your word by the power of your spirit bringing it home to our hearts and minds in such a way that we are changed by it. Uh, for Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Uh, no son of mine is going to behave like that. Uh, that's the words that I distinctly remember my dad saying uh, when I'd behave particularly badly at Craig Ridock's ninth birthday party on Reservoir Road in Bendigo. I can still remember the house. No son of mine is going to behave like that. I don't know if your parents have ever said something like that to you, but the message was pretty clear. I had behaved in a way that reflected really, really badly on my family, on my parents. I'd behaved in a way that just didn't match up, wasn't fitting for all the love and care and sacrifice that my parents had poured into my life over the years. No son of mine is going to behave like that. And now for some of you, those words might seem a little bit harsh, and my dad was probably about as frustrated as I've ever seen him in my life. But it wasn't that he didn't love me. It wasn't even that he was ashamed of me. It was that he was disappointed. Disappointed that in that moment at that birthday party, all the love that he'd poured into my life over the years had not motivated me to want to behave in a way that pleased him, that honoured him, that was worthy of the kind of family he was trying to lead. In a similar way, in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, God calls us to respond to all the love and grace and, and blessing and mercy that he's poured out on our lives in Jesus Christ, his son, by walking in a way that is worthy of him, that honours him, that pleases him, that's kind of befitting of children who've been called into the very family of God. Now that's Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. It's a call for us to walk worthily, 
before God our Father. And in today's passage, we see that at its core, for us to walk worthily together as a church involves two things. It involves pursuing purity together and guarding unity together. That's not everything Paul's going to have to say about walking worthily, but in Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 6, walking worthily together involves pursuing purity together and guarding unity together. So let's dive right in. First, uh, we're going to take a look uh, at uh, what I've called the the all-important context of Paul's call to walk worthily. Take a look there, just at verse 1. Paul says, as a prisoner of the Lord, then... Actually, it could be maybe a little bit clearer if it was translated as a prisoner of the Lord, therefore. Uh, When I studied at Bible College, uh, one of my incredibly funny Bible College lecturers uh, used to say, if you see a therefore in the Bible, you have to ask yourself, what is it there for? Uh, That was a a, a fairly geeky Bible College joke, right? Uh, But that'll stick in your mind now. And as kind of kind of corny as it was, it does have a point, right? Whenever you see the word therefore in the Bible, the writer's referring back to something that's come before. And that's important in this instance. In this case, Paul is referring back, he's bearing in mind everything that he said in chapters 1 to 3, where Paul has unpacked in great detail God's amazing grace to us in Christ his Son. Remember where Paul started with the fact that God our Father has given us every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. And so here he says in chapter 4 verse 1, therefore live in a different way. That's what he's going to unpack in chapters 4 to 6. This is really important, isn't it? I don't know who's here today. Maybe you're here at church for the very first time. Maybe you have a preconceived idea of what Christianity is. Lots of people think that Christianity, uh, the the message of Christianity, is essentially that if you behave well enough for long enough, then maybe, just maybe, God might accept you one day. Maybe you might have proved yourself to be worthy of being blessed by God. But that's not Christianity at all, and it's not Paul's message in Ephesians. He's taken three chapters to tell us how God has blessed us, not because we were good enough, but because he was good enough. He was gracious and merciful and loving. Uh, he has blessed us. So, so we live these lives that are worthy of the Lord, are uh, not to earn God's blessing, but in response to God's blessing, in response to the amazing grace that he's shown us in Christ, his son. This is really important context for Paul's call to work, walk worthily. I don't want you to hear today uh, that, okay, God needs me to behave in a particular way, and then he'll bless me. No, Paul said, God has blessed you in Jesus, his son, with every spiritual blessing. Therefore, live differently. Walk worthily. That's the context of Paul's call. Uh, then, uh, <clears throat> uh, excuse me. Uh, then we come to the call itself. It's important to understand exactly uh, what Paul's saying. Let me just uh, find my spot in my notes. Paul says there in the rest of verse one, "I urge you to live a life that is worthy." I notice Paul says, "I urge you." Uh, he doesn't say, "I command you," "I direct you." He says, "I urge you." It's a word that's kind of an emotional, an emotional appeal. It's a plead. 
Why does Paul do that? Like, it's not like Paul, as an apostle of Christ, didn't have the authority to say, this is how you should live. I command you to do it. And Paul elsewhere does issue commands. But he also knows that you rarely, if ever, motivate people to live differently simply by demanding it. You've got to get under their skin. You've got to get in their heart. You've got to plead with them to respond to all the blessings they've received in Christ by living differently. To see the implications of God's grace to them in the gospel of Christ. So Paul urges them to walk worthily. I say walk worthily. Because those words, live a life, literally mean to walk. It's a bit obscured in our translation. But what's Paul saying? He's saying just as uh, me and my dad uh, might have a a kind of distinctive way of walking and speaking and talking, a, a way that shows that he is my father and I am his son, so also we as Christians ought to have a distinctive way of walking, of talking, of living, a way that shows that God is our heavenly father and we are his children, a way that is worthy of us being members of his family. So Paul says, walk worthily, live a life that is worthy. That word worthy uh, is, uh, is the Greek word axios. Anyone know an English word that has the axi? Uh, there's an English word, uh, maybe uh, the maths teachers in the house know it, uh, axiomatic. You've heard that term. It's something that's kind of self-evident or undeniable. What's Paul saying? He's saying live in a way that it just makes sense. It's undeniable. It's self-evident in light of all the blessings that you've received. That's what he means when he says live a life that is worthy of it. It's a life that just naturally flows from God's love and grace to you in Christ his Son. It's a life that flows, in particular, Paul says, uh, from the calling that we've received. See that in verse 1? The calling that we've received. Uh, sometimes in Christian circles, uh, someone might, uh, an individual Christian might speak about a, a deep sense of being called to a particular career or vocation, like I feel called to be a builder or a pastor or a teacher or a nurse or whatever it might be. And that's a wonderful thing, to to have a a deep sense that God's called you to something. That's not what Paul's talking about here. Here Paul's talking about uh, the wonderful reality uh, that is true of every true believer in Christ, uh, which is uh, is that God has called us to himself through the good news about Jesus. It's not just that through the gospel, God invites you to come to Jesus and put your faith in him. It's that God uh, draws you to Jesus. He he winds you in uh, by the power of his call, his call that comes through the gospel of Christ. And Paul says here uh, that if we deeply understand the way in which God in his goodness and grace and mercy has called us to himself despite our stubbornness and pride and sin, And then we'll understand that a certain way of living is just self-evident. It's worthy of the calling that we've received. And so in verses 2 to 6, Paul starts to unpack the the details of uh, of what it would look like for the Ephesians to walk worthily together. Uh, I said before, uh, it's those two ideas, pursuing purity together and guarding unity together. And that kind of makes sense in light of the calling that we've received. 
I think in Paul's mind that the call, the way that God has called us uh, is a unifying call and a holy call. A pure call. So it's a unifying call in the sense, if you remember Ephesians chapters 2 and 3 in particular, God has called people to himself from a diverse range of nations, every tribe and language and tongue, uh, but they've been called to be a part of his one people, his people who are united with him and with one another through faith in Christ. So God's call is a unifying call. It's a call that leads to oneness. And so it's no surprise that Paul, in verses 3 to 6 in particular, says, walk a life worthy of your calling by guarding the unity of our church. God's call is also a holy call in that it comes from him, the God who is perfect and pure in every way. So we're to pursue these holy lives together, these lives of purity. Uh, That's what Paul describes in verse 2. Our lives that actually serve to guard the unity of our church. Walking worthily together is pursuing purity together and guarding unity together. I hope that's clear. So what about this life of pursuing purity together? What does it look like? Uh, Paul picks it up in verse 2. Paul starts by urging us uh, to be completely humble. Now, for for some of you, if you've been around Christian circles for a while, you'd think, yeah, sure, like humility, that's a kind of character trait that is honourable and worthy in the Christian life. Uh, But in Paul's day, it wasn't. It's interesting, isn't it? In Paul's day, uh, to call someone humble was to insult them. Only the lowliest of slaves would have been called humble. It it was a derogatory term. It, It was derogatory until Jesus came along. When the eternal Son of God entered into the world and humbled himself, not just to become a human being, but to be obedient to death on a cross, uh, all of a sudden the character trait of humility was revolutionised, not just for Christians, but for Western culture, where humility became an honourable thing, something uh, worthy of imitation. And so Paul calls uh, the Ephesians to be completely humble in the way they relate to one another. It also makes sense for Paul to call them to be humble in this context, doesn't it? Where his mind is on the unity of the church. In my experience, it's usually my pride that gets in the way of unity with other people. If I enter into a conversation or or a meeting uh, where I'm convinced of the rightness of my own perspectives, I've got the blinkers on, my ears are blocked, it doesn't usually go well. It causes more tension and angst. If I kind of think I'm better than other people, like I wouldn't say that, but deep down maybe I do think it, that I might be inclined to look down on other people and be a bit dismissive of them and their points of view, not really listen to them. I suspect that I'm not the only person whose pride gets in the way of healthy relating and unity in relationships. So it makes sense that Paul calls the Ephesians to be completely humble, which does raise questions, doesn't it? Because sometimes we might not quite know what it looks like to be humble. Some people are always talking themselves down. They act like they've got nothing to contribute at all. They've got never had an original thought in their life, you know, like they've just got nothing to offer. And they say, it's because I'm so humble. Actually, they're often a bit consumed with themselves. 
But to be humble is not to think less of yourself, as Tim Keller has shown in his little book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. You can read it. To be humble is not to think less of yourself. It's to think of yourself less. It's to follow the example of Jesus, who Paul points us to in Philippians chapter 2, who set aside his own interests in humility to be focused on the interests of others, to serve the interests of others. So what might it look like for us to be humble, completely humble in the way we relate to one another? If you turn up at church, I want to suggest that the humble person is the person who's able to kind of, to some degree, get outside of their own head, their own thinking, their own scattered emotions and look to the interests of other people. To ask themselves, who is it that I can encourage today? Who is it that's on their own right now that I could connect with and welcome? Is there anyone new here at church? Is there anyone I can serve? Who who can I get alongside and pray for this afternoon? I'm not saying it's not appropriate. Sometimes we're weighed down by thoughts and complex emotions, and they're just a bit all-consuming, of course. But the essence of humility is being able to set aside your own interests and focus on the interests of others. Paul calls the Ephesians to be completely humble. And then he calls them to be gentle. Another slightly complicated term, uh, gentleness, is sometimes translated as meekness. And I think people go meekness equals weakness. And those of us who have kind of strong personalities and strong convictions feel a bit uncomfortable about that. What do you mean? I've got to be weak. You know, it kind of conveys the idea that to be a Christian uh, means that you should never be assertive. Uh, You should be very, very careful about advocating for your own rights or entitlements in any situation uh, because we're called to be meek, right? And meekness equals weakness. Uh, But it doesn't. Jesus himself, in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30, described himself as the one who is gentle, meek, and humble, lowly in heart, gentle and lowly in heart. Now, of course, Jesus wasn't preoccupied with his own rights. He was looking to the interests of others, but he certainly was no pushover. He was someone with strong convictions, a strong personality. He was passionate about what the Lord had called him to, what his father had called him to. So gentleness is not so much about being weak It's about having your strength under control. Strength under control so it can be channeled for the good of others. That's what we see in Jesus. The almighty, strong and powerful one whose strength was always used for the good of others in gentleness and tenderness. That's gentleness. In fact, in Paul's day, maybe this is a useful picture, I read during the week, sometimes the word gentleness was used to describe uh, the process of a master taming a wild donkey, right? So they could be kind of broken in and used for the good purposes of the master. Like That's not a bad picture of what gentleness looks like in the life of the Christian. Uh, We, in our sin and stubbornness and pride, uh, were like wild donkeys, You know, God in his grace had to break us in. He had to show us our sin, our brokenness, our weakness, uh, so that our strength can be channeled for the good of Jesus, our master, and the good of his people in gentleness. So I just want to say that um, 
Sometimes I find it, like, I think our church is full of people, including myself, who are strong personalities, you know? I've got strong opinions, I've got strong convictions, I think there are ways that things could or should be done. Sometimes I come on strong, right? And I think it's actually great. Like, I'd prefer people to be strong and passionate and invested and actually care about things than to be apathetic. But we do need to pray that our strength would be channeled for the good of others. Our strength would be under control. Something I've been praying this week. That we'd be gentle in the way we relate to one another. A completely humble, Paul says, uh, gentle. Uh, and third, uh, he says, he calls us, uh, he urges uh, the Ephesians to be patient with one another, uh, to bear with one another. I think I've had a few moments uh, since becoming a Christian quite a while ago now, um, but a few moments where I've just been blown away with how patient God is with me. I don't always think that, as I said a few weeks ago. I probably said sometimes in my kind of self-righteousness, I kind of think, yeah, God's kind of lucky to have me, you know. But other times where I have a bit of more insight, I realise, you know, like God has put up with so much from me. I'm incredibly stubborn and proud, full of sin and failure of all sorts of kinds. God has been incredibly patient with me. And he's been patient with all of us, like if you're a Christian. So it makes sense. It's worthy for us to be patient with one another. What does a patient church look like? People could brainstorm that later on, chat about it over supper. A couple of things. I think a patient church is a church that's slow to anger. Like that's a character trait of God that we read in the Bible. It's an, a mark of his patience. God is not kind of trigger happy, not volatile or explosive. He's got a long fuse rather than a short fuse. That's a mark of a patient church. A patient church also, I want to suggest, would be slow to judge and critique and criticise. That's not to say that it's never appropriate to rebuke or correct a brother or sister, but it is that, that you're kind of slow to do that. You want to make sure that you've patiently listened to them and you've understood where they're coming from before you perhaps then correct them. That's patience. And if you're anything like me, I'm a mixed bag with showing people patience. I reckon this is an area that, that we could grow in. We could grow in all these things as individuals and as a church. But I think this is an area that we could grow in, being patient with one another. Which is not to say that when there's sin and failure in the church that we just kind of put our head in the sand and pretend it's all okay. That's not patience. right? Well, Some sin and failure really does need to be called out. It needs to be addressed, especially amongst leaders. Right? It needs to be addressed uh, sometimes in a more formal way. But those of you who are regulars know that that's what I got a taste of that earlier this year in the presbytery process. That was painful, but completely appropriate and necessary for the purity of the church, right? So it's not to say that we should just kind of turn a blind eye to sin and failure. But it is to say that in general, we should be patient with one another patient with the sin and failure of others, because we know that our lives too are full of sin and failure. 
Paul calls us to bear with one another, to be patient with one another. And fourth, uh, at the end of verse 2, we're to bear with one another in love. Constant theme, isn't it? The, The key kind of pinnacle virtue in the Christian life is love. A love that is patient. That's what Paul's just said. A love that is kind, that is gentle. A love that is deeply humble so that it's other person centred, concerned for the interests of others. As we heard last week, may God strengthen us and root us and establish us in this kind of love for one another. So that's kind of the first thing. God in his word is calling us to walk worthily together by pursuing purity as a church, a life of holiness that actually serves to guard the unity of our church, uh, which is really Paul's focus in verses 3 to 6. Now, if you take a look at verses 3 to 6, I think it's not like you don't need a a kind of three- or four-year Bible college degree uh, to see that Paul's key idea in verses 3 to 6 is oneness or unity. He kind of drives it home a few times. I may have miscounted. I have said I've got a vision impairment, so sometimes I miss things. But I think eight times in four verses, he uses the words one or unity. You can underline them if you like. Maybe not in a church Bible, but, um, you know. And you'll notice that Paul's not saying that it's our job as Christians to try and manufacture unity, to kind of create it. He's saying that we've got to make every effort to keep the unity, to guard the unity, the unity that is already ours through faith in Christ. God has already brought us together through faith in Christ. Now, that's not to minimise how hard it can be to guard the unity of the church. I mean, it's not as hard as kind of creating it, but guarding it can be difficult. Uh, Despite our unity in Christ, there's all sorts of diversity in the church, People from different nationalities, people who speak different uh, languages as their first language, people who grew up in different socioeconomic classes, people with different political persuasions, people with vastly different personalities, like lots of diversity, despite our unity in Jesus. And in the midst of all that diversity, we don't always do a great job of living the lives that Paul describes in verse 2. So it's no surprise that it's really quite hard to guard the unity of a church, of our church. It's why Paul says, make every effort to do it. Paul knows that it's not that easy. It's something you've got to give attention to. Those words, make every effort, have the idea, a bit of an idea of urgency about them. Elsewhere in the New Testament, they're translated as hurry, you know, hasten to do something. That's not to say that we've got to be anxious or kind of panicky about the unity of the church, but it is to say we shouldn't be complacent about it. If you've got Ephesians 4 open, you might want to scan down to verse 27. We'll come to this in a, in a few weeks' time. But you'll see there in verse 27 that Paul says that the devil, our enemy, is always looking for a foothold. But even the slightest opportunity to break apart our unity in Christ. So we've got to be alert to this. We've got to be paying careful attention to the unity of our church. I was thinking about it in music practice. Uh, I've played in a few bands and and orchestras and things over the years. Uh, And musically, if you want to play in perfect unison or, or do something in perfect harmony... 
you've actually got to pay careful attention to it. You've got to make a real effort to do it, to, to keep everything happening in unity, in harmony, at peace with one another. That's what Paul's saying here. If we're to live lives that are in tune with one another, in sync with one another, it's going to take careful attention. We've got to make every effort to do it. In verse 3, Paul reminds us that, uh, I guess, part of the reason, uh, I guess, what unites us as a church is what he calls here the unity of the Spirit. What we share in uh, the wonderful reality that uh, all believers in Jesus are filled with the same Spirit of God. Uh, And notice the rest. He says, guard the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. I've never really noticed that before, but I think that in using those words through the bond of peace, Paul's reminding us of the cost that God has paid for us to be at peace and to be in unity with one another. You should read it later on again, if you want, the second half of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. Paul explained how through Christ's blood shed on the cross... God the Father has brought together people from every nation into a powerful bond of peace. People who were once divided, who were once hostile to one another, are now at peace, not just with God, but with one another. But it was costly. It cost the precious blood of Jesus, God's Son. So when Paul says, guard the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace... I think he's reminding us, he's saying, just remember how precious the peace and unity of the church is to God your Father. He considered it to be worth the shedding of Jesus' blood on the cross. Guard the unity of the Spirit, Paul says, through the bond of peace. That's a pretty deep reason, I reckon. Thinking about the cross and Christ's blood shed, it's a pretty deep reason to be serious about paying careful attention to the unity of our church. Uh, But Paul goes even deeper uh, in verses 3 to 6. He actually says uh, that our unity with one another as a local church is a concrete physical sign of our spiritual unity with God himself, the God who we've come to know as Father, Son and Spirit. So if you look at verse 4, you'll see that God the Spirit is the one in focus. First, Paul reminds us that there's one body of Christ. Paul knows that there are lots of local bodies of Christ. You know, he's not, even in his day, like near to us, there are lots of local bodies of Christ. Thornbury Church of Christ, Northcote Baptist, Reservoir Presbyterian, Bandura Presbyterian, Mary Anglican. Like there's lots of local bodies of Christ. Paul knows that. But in the midst of that diversity, Paul's saying that there's one universal body of Christ. And it's made up of all true believers in Jesus uh, who are in heaven and on earth who are united under Christ their head. Christ their Lord. There's one body of Christ, Paul says, and here's where the Spirit comes in, uh, the Spirit, uh, the body of Christ that is united by the one Spirit. Uh, So Paul says, guard the unity of the church because your unity with one another in a particular local church is a concrete physical sign of the fact that you all share in the same Spirit of God, the same relationship with God, the Spirit. 
And then God the Son, he addresses Christ, our Lord, in verse 4 and verse 5. In verse 4, Paul points out that uh, through Christ God's Son, through the Lord, are we all ha- we've all been called to the one hope. What's that hope? It, it's the hope uh, that one day our Lord Jesus Christ will return. Uh, look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14 later on the final redemption of God's people, to go and be with Jesus in the new heavens and new earth and enjoy the full blessings of everything that it means to be a child of God. This is our one hope. And Paul says we have this one hope because we have one faith. We know that only faith in Christ alone saves That's our one faith, our one faith in Christ. And as a people who've put our our faith in Christ, we also believe that there's one baptism. You see that there in verse 5. Now, maybe that's a little bit confusing for some people. Might be like, well, surely there's at least two baptisms. You know, I've heard about the the baptism in the Spirit, and I've seen people baptised in water. Like, surely that's at least two. That's true, there are in that sense two legitimate biblical baptisms. But Paul's already said a couple of times, hasn't he, you guys share in the same spirit. So I think here he's talking about water baptism. And even though there are different takes on modes of baptism, you know, I'm okay with sprinkling someone or pouring water on them. Uh, I'm even okay with dunking them fully, you know, immersing them, like I'm quite flexible. But others say, no, it's got to be full immersion, like different takes on modes of baptism, and different takes on who should be baptised. Now, I think it's a good thing for the children of believing parents to be baptised. Others say, no, 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 you should wait until they're older. Only believing adults should be baptised. So there is some diversity. But even in the midst of that diversity, everyone agrees that the one true baptism is baptism done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only baptism that counts. The one true baptism that says an outward physical sign that this person belongs to Jesus and is a part of his people. One hope, one faith, one baptism, because we all share in this same relationship with God the Son, with Jesus Christ our Lord. And then in verse 6, Paul comes to God the Father. He reminds us that there's only one Christian family around the world, made up of all the children of God uh, who look to the one God and Father of all. That's Paul's message in verses 3 to 6. He's saying uh, the unity of a particular local church, a body of Christ, like in Ephesus, like in Thornbury, is a concrete physical expression of the unity, the spiritual unity that we share with God himself, the God who we've come to know as Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, maybe for some of you that raises some questions. You perhaps feel a little bit of discomfort about that because we're not necessarily in the midst of the most unified time as a church. I don't think there's kind of... But, like, the reality is there are lots of uncertainties, lots of unanswered questions. Some of those questions are answered in my mind, but that hasn't been communicated yet, right? 
Lots of unanswered questions. Uh, when are we going to move to Rossmoyne Street? New unanswered question today. You know, what time are we going to be doing church for the next <laughs> however long? What's the budget going to look like for next year? How are we going to get out of this financial fix that we find ourselves in? What's the paid ministry staff going to look like next year? Like, lots of unanswered questions. Unanswered questions about the future tend to create anxiety and insecurity because we all like to be in control. And in the midst of anxiety and insecurity, people often take sides. The temptation would be for us in a moment like this to splinter into groups according to which way we think is the best way forward. I hope you can see from Ephesians 4 verses 1 to 6 that that would not be a helpful thing. That God our Father wants us to walk worthily of the unity that he's brought through the precious blood of Jesus his Son. That is not to say, let me say this clearly, it's not to say that we don't want people to ask questions that we want to stifle robust debate. We don't want to stifle robust debate. We don't want to dodge legitimate criticism where things have been done wrong. But we do want to stick together. We want to remember that the things that unite us as a church are much, much deeper than some of these things that we might see differently. Right? May God strengthen us in these coming months, in these coming weeks, to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Our brothers and sisters, uh, God has abundantly blessed us in Jesus Christ, his Son. He's shown us amazing grace and love and care and he calls us to walk worthily of that and to live as children of his. Our walk worthily in particular from today's passage by pursuing purity together and guarding unity together. Uh, let's pray. Our Father, we need your help and we thank you for your amazing uh, grace and mercy and blessing to us in Jesus, your Son. Uh, you have blessed us far beyond uh, we can comprehend and far beyond what we deserve. Uh, we pray, Father, that we would in this moment, commit ourselves uh, to responding to your love and grace and mercy by seeking to walk worthily together. We pray, Father, that in so doing, we would commit ourselves to live lives of holiness together by your grace, that we would seek to be completely humble and gentle and patient with one another, uh, that we would bear with one another in love. Father, you know that we're not going to be doing this perfectly. And we throw ourselves upon your mercy in that regard. But we pray that by the power of your spirit, that, that you might help us. And we pray, Father, that in living these lives, that you might help us to pay careful attention to the unity of our church, to keep the unity of the spirit, remembering, Father, that our unity together as a church is supposed to be a reflection of our spiritual unity with you, the God who we know as Father, Son and Spirit. Please, Father, plant these truths deep in our heart and change us for the glory of your Son, we pray. Amen.